from KQED. A busy week in California politics, a new state budget proposal, a new candidate in the U.S. Senate race, and more. It's our California politics podcast for May 15th. I'm John Myers from KQED News, along with Marisa Lagos from KQED and Anthony York from the Grizzly Bear Project. And up first on this week's podcast, the one, the only, Jerry Brown. The fundamentals of what government's supposed to do, health and education, that's the focus on our spending. I kind of gave him a better, like, ramped-up intro than the way he delivered his line. So maybe I should talk to him about that. You know, you know, like I gave him the whole, like, you know, the one, the only. Anyway, I was actually thinking that while he was talking at this press conference. Like, it's it's almost like he's like, yeah, 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 another budget, another revise. You all have the same questions. I'm gonna answer them <laughs> here. I'm gonna. F- I mean, he did flip the chart upside down. He he clearly thought that flashes, was pretty clever. Right. A few um, flashes. He, yeah, wound, he wound up for a couple of quotes. <laughs> but, you know, but that's because it's it's good news, man. It's just not. It's harder to get up for good news sometimes. <laughs> and so look at the energy level in the studio as we get up for good news. So we're going to talk about the governor's revised budget, as you call it in Sacramento, the May revise. Um, May revision. Well, it depends on who you talk to mm, and well. their level of um, grammatical uh, accuracy. Um, the governor's revised budget uh, out uh, here on Thursday as we're sitting here taping this. Uh, $115 billion spending plan. Um, it sends money to public schools. It would uh, has a deal on um, in-state undergraduate tuition, which we'll talk about, and this new tax credit for the working poor. A lot of a little bits and pieces here. Um this felt like one of those budgets, and we, you know, we I can flip the page here in front of people so they can see that it's heavy. All right, thump it. Exactly. Marisa will thump uh, it there on it's the not, it's not that heavy, desk of the studio. We have not um, completely digested this entire thing. You will be shocked What are you to learn. talking about? I know every word of this. Okay, so Marisa, it's, it's still, it's, start off. <laughs> it's still in our um, figurative esophagus. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you so much. And the podcast audience turned off. But we do want to talk top line, um, things that are big takeaways, and then I think kind of looking forward to the budget debate ahead. Because as we all know, the gun now kind of sounds on the the last lap of the budget dance and the most important lap of the budget dance. We've got one month between the governor unveiling this and the legislature having to send him a budget or they don't get paid under the provisions of Prop 25 from a few years ago. And that has changed the budget process uh, quite dramatically. Maurice has already complained about how we don't camp out in the hallways anymore. Oh, that was not a complaint. I, I want to <laughs> be clear about that. I but, am happy to avoid that germ bear and all that stuff. That plus the lowering of the of the budget threshold in the legislature to a majority vote, it has changed the dynamics a lot. But so let's look at a, a couple of the top line things. As we've talked about before, um, and I've tried to caution people, you know, you don't expect a lot of new big policy proposals out of a revised budget. It's usually like, let's look at the new revenue numbers. Let's kind of see how they impact all the other stuff. But having said that, there were these notable items in this one. Yeah. The the deal with the University of California. Um, but up first, I want to talk about the earned income tax credit. The governor has embraced uh, this idea, which people have been talking about in California for a while, uh, there is one on the federal level, which effectively says people who are the working poor get money back in their pockets. It's a credit right off of their taxes. This is the way the governor described why he now was doing the um, EITC, as they call it. I've always liked the earned income tax credit because it doesn't have any particular uh, bureaucracy or complexity. It's just a straight uh, uh deliverance of funding to people who are working very hard 
and are earning very little money. So about $380 million in this budget for the earned income tax credit. Um, Which seems to be, you know, something everyone can agree on. We've already seen some, you know, response from uh, Republicans saying that they support it. I mean, you know, the Democrats have come out very quickly saying that there's not enough in this for working families, for the poor. Um, I talked to Mike Harold from the Western Center on Law and Poverty. And he, you know, he was saying, you know, not everybody who's poor can work. So it also shows, you know, how much of this is really sort of around the margins because in a $115 budget, as you mentioned, this is $380 million, um, you know, $6.7 billion in extra revenue since January, and 5.5 of that is going to schools. So the, the, the debate that this is starting and, you know, the, the discussions that are going to happen over the next month are, are really, you know, they're going to be important and huge to the people who are at stake here, but it's also interesting because it's really such a tiny slice of the budget. Yeah, well, and the earned income tax credit, you know, as Marisa alluded to, the Democrats have a proposal that will be bigger than than uh, than the uh, plan the governor unveiled, which would be divvied up about by uh, about two million people, but according to the governor's estimates. Um, you know, twenty five other states in the District of Columbia already have state only programs and. You know, it, it's it's celebrated as one of these programs that is uh, perhaps the most effective of, at bringing people out of poverty. But, but you know, but it does sort of highlight the divisions between people living in poverty and the working poor versus those in deep poverty and those people who are going to be dependent on the safety net and social services uh, more completely. And 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 you know, I, I think. There are slightly different constituencies. If you talk to someone like uh, like Speaker Tony Atkins, she talks a lot about the working poor, and she in her tweets after the budget today. I mean, it's sort of her background. She grew up, you know, as the child of she grew up, you know, the child of parents who were working poor. Um, whereas someone like Senator Holly Mitchell, you know, her focus. And her emphasis is on those in deep poverty, and so um, you know that's one of the many uh, one of the many um, sort of I don't know storylines might be might be strong, but one of the things that'll play out over the next six weeks, sort of uh, uh, you know, there, there are still some issues left uh, for the governor and uh, and legislative leaders to discuss. And let's be clear, I mean, I, I understand your point that broadly, you know, when you combine the federal and the state, that this can help you know, working families. But we're not, you know, we're talking about between 400 to $2,600 on average, they're saying $2,600 being the most you could get in this tax credit, um, which is certainly money that folks who are poor, anybody really would like back in their pocket. But that alone isn't going to do the trick. And I think that's what you're hearing from both sides of, you know, uh, the legislature from Democrats is, okay, great, but that's not... $2,000 even in California isn't going to go that far. Well, and it's interesting because, I mean, it is, um, you know, it's kind of out of the Jerry Brown playbook, isn't it? Which is like, you know, let's split the difference somewhere. Let's find somewhere in between. And, you know, and I think this is smart politics. And I don't mean this as a negative to the governor, but the governor is pretty good at co-opting the message and narrative of his fellow Democrats, but yep. getting in front of it and pushing it to a way that he can embrace that they can't walk away from. Mm-hmm. I mean, they can't walk away from his proposal of an earned income tax credit because, I mean, that just goes counter to the narrative of what they want, even though when you look at people like the Senate President Pro Tem Kevin DeLeon's statement, he says, well, it's a good anti-poverty tool, but, you know, uh, people need jobs and women can't get jobs without quality child care and these That's things big, can't happen right. and those things can't happen. But, you know, give the governor credit for finding the way to to pull something out of that mix of proposals and highlight it that they all have to kind of then 
line yeah, up in some way. Yeah. It, it narrows the scope of, uh, it, it sort of narrow, narrows the battlefield. And, and I think that's that's a function of there their being revenues. I mean, for all the money that was gobbled up by schools, you know, this earned income tax credit comes off the top because the tax credit is, you know, is taken before schools get their share. And so, uh, I mean, that is one little piece of revenue that was, quote unquote, taken from yeah. schools, if you wa- if you want to put it that way. And I think, too, you know, we're seeing the governor really draw a line in the sand here with his narrative on, you know, this idea where he he has these charts up and he's showing, look, like, yes, we are in the black finally, but look at how much deeper the red was than how high the black is. And saying, you know, we can't just then spend, spend, spend because we're going to end up right back where we were five years ago. And that's something that I think is going to be sort of the center of this whole debate between the legislature and the governor. Well, and that's a good cue for another piece of tape from the governor uh, about um, another one of the only Jerry Brown phrases. I don't want to get caught in the, the jaws of the persistent fiscal instability of the state government of California. There it is. And uh, the idea that when you get a little money or a lot of money for a few years, that now you've reached utopia is so demonstrably false as evidenced by the last 12 years. So we have to learn from history and not keep repeating the mistakes. So was the governor talking about Thomas More's utopia or Plato's utopia? I was a little unclear to me from that quote. <laughs> you know, we didn't get a chance to drill down on that. But but maybe, maybe, Governor, if you're time. listening, maybe. I'm you sorry, can... Governor, a follow-up, a follow-up, <laughs> and the door closes. <laughs> so let's pivot to talk about this UC uh, deal. Um, started hearing some rumblings about this on, on Wednesday night. Got this laid out in the, in the revision on Thursday. Th- I mean, this clearly seems to be drawn. I think the governor even kind of hinted at this. Uh, from these committee of two, these meetings that he's doing with the UC president, Janet Napolitano, these closed door meetings trying to figure out a a middle ground between Napolitano saying we're going to raise tuition and Brown saying you shouldn't raise tuition, you need more money. So it looks like what they've come up of, again, is a little bit of both. The UC agrees to freeze tuition for the next two years. Um, In exchange, the state will give the UC more money, but it doesn't look to be quite as much money as the UC initially wanted. Pretty close. But the UC is also given flexibility on out-of-state enrollment. So again, that can go back to that well that we've used a lot. And the other big moving part here that um, we were talking a lot about, podcast audience, before we hit record on the tape, was the money for UC pensions. The governor takes one-time money and essentially pays off a portion of the UC's pension problem, which has been talked about a lot. It's got a big old nasty pension problem there, an unfunded liability. And all of these little mechanics together seem to be, I guess, two really um, smart politicians coming up with a political deal. A very political. And, and, I mean, you look at sort of where the money comes from. I mean, because the money is being earmarked for the pensions— uh, it doesn't come out of the general fund. They can pay it out of the rainy day fund, which stipulates that you have to pay use money to pay down debt. Yeah, I should so have pointed so, that out. So it looks qualifies. like that money comes out of the Prop 2 money. Yeah. So, so I mean, that's part of the mechanics of this deal. In, in exchange, the governor also gets some of some of the structural reforms that he wants. He got he gets to, to claim credit for for getting UC to agree to a cap in in uh, defined benefit pensions, which is equal to the state cap that that the governor passed for other state employees in 2000. 12, was that? Ish. 11, that sounds, 12? I think... Yes, 12? 2012. I uh, remember it. I think you and I were chasing him down the hall that year. I remember, I remember L.A. I remember an L.A. press conference. Anyway. Um, That's another podcast. But uh, <laughs> um, 
you know, but 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 to your point, this is a very political deal, and that the two of them do seem to have been able to to craft a solution that you know allows, I think, both of them to declare victory. That the governor gets some structural changes and reforms that he wanted out of UC, finds a way to fund the money out of something other than the general fund, and uh, and that Napolitano gets the money that she says she needed in order to hold the line on tuition. Yeah, and I got to say, you know, I think it's in many ways a win for students and the public. It's kind of it's kind of a loss for reporters though. You know, we had this great fight looming and they they went behind closed doors and I even had a hashtag out. Janet or Jerry yeah. and it like like totally screwed up. No, yeah. totally. But, you know, it's interesting. The governor also sort of mentioned and, you know, as you said we haven't digested all the details here, but some other sort of using technology and he like he mentioned that in their meetings of two they had some presentations on on looking at you know comparing schools to schools and making sure that you know departments are sort of spending the same amount of money for the same types of classes and using technology to optimize university uh operations so uh, this isn't the last we're going to hear about this and i think some of the details are going to get fleshed out in coming months but it seems like Kind of nobody can be that mad about this, and again, right? and, I, and it's I think it's emblematic of the Brown um, splitting the difference down the middle. It's you know, I mean, there was something he said in the press conference which I like almost hated to like want to invoke the canoe theory, but Don't it is, do it. but no, but it, but it is very much a Brown way of governing, which is let's find some way that we can, you know, and even like look at the UC deal. Um, the elements there, as you were talking about, Marisa, about all of this examination of like the way we educate college students. The governor has been saying that at Regents meetings now for several months. He wanted the commission. It was the, you know, people pan the idea of a blue ribbon commission. Well, the governor's going to get something to that effect out of this. The, the, the other part that we haven't talked about is that it looks like that the UC got more of the attention than the Cal State system out of this. And so there's already some early uh, grumbling in the legislature among Democrats that the Cal State system didn't get what it needed out of this and that even Speaker Atkins' statement that the Cal State system has been, um, I think she even said something to like, it has taken a more responsible approach to student fees. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, um, UC. So, yeah. I mean, I think there's going to be some re-looking at, at other parts of higher ed. Clearly, community colleges uh, get help through the Prop 98 uh, formula. And also, too, this deal talks about transfers of more community college students right. into oh, yeah. the UC program. And that's a big deal. Yeah, that's a big deal. And that's something that UC, I think, has already sort of streamlined and done a, a pretty good job at by most accounts. Um, but I think that, yeah, plays to this larger narrative. And I think it's something the governor is probably going to point towards when when there are criticisms of this deal that, you know, we are asking the UC to really take on a lot more um, than they have been. So, yeah, I mean, and I think Napolitano will be out there in the coming days, the UC president, talking about this. It'll be interesting to kind of hear her side of things. So splitting the difference, one more uh, of the of the policy, of the new policy things out of this budget was the governor's approach to health care for undocumented immigrants. The governor's got a proposal in here that uh, would uh, expand health care and safety net services to those who are undocumented who would be eligible for status under President Obama's executive order, which, of course, is being challenged in federal court. And that's another podcast. Um, But that brings some of those folks into the state system, especially on the health care end, and has a substantial cost to it through the Medi-Cal program, but doesn't go as far, it appears, as what State Senator Ricardo Lara's bill, SB4, wanted to do, which was to bring pretty much all undocumented immigrants into the Medi-Cal system. What I read is some pretty unequivocal statements about that bill, kind of saying he was not going to support it. Um, it. 
Did you think differently? I, I mean, I, it, I think so. I mean, there was there was a discussion about maybe that unequivocal in the press conference. is too strong, but I'm not sure that he got the question the way it was. I was actually trying to figure. I wanted to ask, like, wait a minute, but then did he you, left the yeah. stage. Yeah, but I think I mean this is certainly you know money that that the state. I mean, it's interesting that it's in here because, as you said, it hasn't been resolved on the federal level whether uh, this group is actually going to be considered legal. Um, And it seems to me that if they are, the state's going to have to pay this money, period, right? And I certainly get back to the point that, again, it's the governor finding a way to um, smartly co-opt the message, the issue of, of of putting himself in the forefront of immigration issues and California in it without going as far as some of his colleagues want. But, Anthony, you were talking um, before we hit record, too. We were just talking again, remarking on the further expansion of the number of people who are working poor in the Medi-Cal system. Right. 12.4 million people on Medi-Cal. And that's, you know, I mean, that's a third of our state's population. There's a third of our state's population that is living in, you know, a family of three. I don't know exactly where the income cutoff is, $26,000, $27,000 a year. I mean, not, not a lot of money. Um, you know, I think, uh, and it just, those numbers continue to rise. Now we, under the Affordable Care Act, we've expanded Medi-Cal coverage, the eligibility to, uh, you move the poverty level from a hundred percent to 138% and also expanded it to single adults, which, um, you know, previously you had to have children in order to be able to qualify for Medi-Cal. Um, so there's been an expansion of eligibility, but the feds are paying, uh, you know, feds are paying a lot of the costs for those newly eligible but uh, I mean, the governor said today that spending, state spending on Medi-Cal has grown by a third since he right. took office. I mean, that's that's incredible. And, you know, that federal, the federal portion of coverage for, for the newly eligible, that begins, it rolls back slowly from 100% to 90% over the next decade. And so there are going to be massive, massive uh, increases in costs in Medi-Cal over, over the next decade. Well, and as you mentioned there already have been. And, and that's something that both the governor and then his budget director, Michael Cohen, who got up later, sort of wanted to underscore was because we have seen these um, these moves by folks to really try to pressure the state to increase their reimbursement rates for Medi-Cal. And what Cohen and to some extent the governor was saying is, look, we're already putting more money and more money into this than we have in recent years. Rates, you know, the, do go up because of, I think, cost of living increases. Is that correct? Um, and he was saying that any real well, increase to that is going to be tied to to efficiencies, essentially, on, on the doctor side. So I think yeah. I think that's an interesting point, that the, the administration is saying, well, we are spending more on Medi-Cal, which is absolutely true. Well, the we question are, is, but, but is it lot, enough? Well, and, and but we're not, what we're not spending more on is we're not spending more on paying the people that provide health care services to people who are on Medi-Cal. So, yes, you can qualify for Medi-Cal, but it's harder and harder to get a doctor to see you or a dentist to see you if right. you have you know and so and that's the issue when you talk about network adequacy that's what we're talking about is it's one thing to have an insurance card it's another thing to be able to go in and see a doctor i thought it was interesting after the governor left the stage that his director of finance michael cohen uh, as you as you mentioned marisa said you know we're open to having a conversation about reimbursement rates but only if you can guarantee increased access to care and it was sort of uh, some pushback that I, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't heard much from yeah. the administration saying, "Hey, look, we'll give you guys more the money you want if you if 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 we can trust you to actually treat more poor people." And so there seems to be some uh, a little bit of an opening there. A, a, not only a little bit of an opening, but but a little bit of a, um, there's some there's a contentious 
relationship there. And I think there's a there's maybe a, a, a trust gap or, or there's some issue. There's some issues that would need to be resolved before the governor would would agree to uh, to a provider rate increase. But I do think I do think it's interesting that he suggested there might be a little opening. I just was going to say, yeah, it seems like he did throw down a bit of a gauntlet there. And I wonder, though, because the folks who are mostly pushing for this are advocates for the the poor, not, I mean, I'm sure the doctors want it too, right? But it, oh, but, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But publicly, right? The people that are talking the most that are have taken the lead to sort of be the spokespeople for this um, sure. tend to be the advocates for the poor. So I think it'll be interesting to see how they respond to that, not to say that the doctors don't want more money. <laughs> but I think, but I think, you know, again, it's that fascinating thing of like, we're going to give you something, but we've got to think about this part. And, you know, and, 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 and the whole time that, that Jerry Brown has been back in Sacramento, these last uh, four and a half years, they have all been about managing expectations, balancing those competing interests, picking your battles. And I think that's kind of where, where I think right. about this. This thing about reimbursement rates for doctors has been out there, but the governor's never engaged mm-hmm. on that battle. It's like sidestepped it or not talked well, about it. Well, he's filed or, lawsuits I mean, to protect his right to cut those provider rates. So Yes, but, but that's also a leftover, too, of the previous administration and the previous era. I mean, he's just – I guess my point is we haven't seen him really engage in the discussion in a way. And maybe that's a hint that there could be a discussion to be had. Like, it's not just so simple that we're going to give you money for Medi-Cal provider rates. There's something else there. Like, I mean, I don't even know what kind of metric you would have, but maybe that's one of the issues. Who knows? You know, it's difficult. It's difficult. And and I think, you know, and how you how you police that, how you enforce that and how you how you get information about sort of the adequacy of a network and how easy it is for a Medi-Cal recipient to actually get in to see a doctor um you know it it's tough and i i think um it it's interesting i mean the governor's not eager to throw a bunch of money at doctors right if they're not going to actually go ahead and and treat poor people but i do think that that pivot from michael cohen today at least shows that there's um regardless of the governor's public stance that there's some more evolved thinking about about sort of the challenge facing facing poor people in Medi-Cal. And perhaps there have been some behind-the-scenes discussions. I mean, sure. the, the way he framed that made it seem like there had. But this is, uh, you know, the only other thing I can think of on this is just, this is, for me, one of those places where, um, and, I, and, I, and I don't want to be overly critical. In politics, I think people are very critical of people who they don't think are consistent. But I think that consistency is really hard when you're presented with lots of things. Again, I'm not defending the governor. I'm not taking the side here. I'm not talking about um, the mafia. No, sorry, that was a reference to last week. I just had to throw that out because Marisa was enjoying that. No, let's don't go off of there. Hold no, on, no. hold that <laughs> thought. But no, but I was just simply going to say that I think that the challenge for the governor a lot of times has been this narrative of frugal, 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 uh, pay off debt, pay off debt, pay off debt. Don't expand the size of government. While at the same time, Medi-Cal, 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 all these other things that expand the size of government that are going to cost money over over a period of time, and that's a those are two very different kinds of um, positioning points out there in the public. And I think right. his challenge is, is navigating between the two, where I don't want to expand the size of government unless I'm expanding the size of government over here in terms of healthcare care Well, and it gets into, you know, the, the, the fundamental issue. And I think that the central idea here is one of sustainability. You know, and, and look, we've been talking about the spending side, but there was a little discussion in the press conference today, and we've talked about it on this podcast, on the revenue side. Right. It's like, and, and so, I mean, that's the balance of the budget, right? How do you match the spending and the spending needs and desires with the, with the income? Uh, and, and so, you know, you can, 
in good budget years like this, it's one thing. But what happens in 2016 when Prop 30 begins to roll off? What happens in 2018 when the income taxes from Prop 30 roll off? What happens when the economy slows down? As we know, we're going to. I mean, you look at this budget document. It's talking about still talking about how the budget is precariously balanced and, you know, preparing for the next recession. And great, we have three and a half billion dollars in the bank right now with the rainy day fund. That I'm bold prediction here. The next recession, our budget hole is going to be a heck of a lot bigger than three point five billion dollars. Yeah, it yeah. won't. It won't be enough. And 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 I guess that just gets me to this other observation quickly. Um, and it's a bit of a risk, I understand, in making too many broad analysis points here. But think about the governor's approach and everyone's approach to the drought and the water problem, which is a there's a finite amount of water. We can't do anything to produce more rain, so we've got to live with what we've got. The governor, in some ways, when it comes to revenues, he's not interested in engaging on the revenue side of, like, we need to find more revenues. He was asked about Bob Hertzberg, Senate Bill 8 today, the idea of changing sales taxes in California, expanding them to services, which is something I wrote about over this past weekend. He said, is that possible? I don't see the path forward. You know, politically, he, he said he was open to the idea, but politically didn't think it was feasible. But also, too, when he was asked about Prop 13 and the notion split of split roll, which actually isn't an initiative yet. I think that right. made it easy for him to dodge that question. But he's not been interested in engaging on changing kind of the the universe of revenue. And mm-hmm. I feel like in some ways it's like he says, nope, this is just the system we've got. We've got to make the system work. And to me, that's the same kind of approach he's taken toward the drought. Like, well, this is all the, wa- all the water we've got. We've got to make it work. But, and it is, and right. there are people who want to change the, the, the playing rules, right? The structure. And that's a challenge. But there is a, there is a I mean, one thing I've learned about watching this governor for the last few years is there is a sequencing that he, you know, like he lines things up in a certain way. And he will, he will, in one way or another, he will engage in the tax discussion. On the, he will engage on the revenue side. It's just now is not the time for him. I mean, you know, let's, let's see what we're talking about this time next year. That's what I was going to say, too. And I think that some of that has to do, and he talked about, you know, this being his final term. And I think he has specific things yeah. at the top of his list that he wants to tackle. And he's, you know, historically been very focused in the last five or six years on on those things as they come and yeah, and then and not pivoting sort of too quickly. So I don't think that's surprising. Um, I did want to mention the traffic courts and fines if if you don't mind. Um, so one of the, the sort of smaller items in this revise was was the establishment of an amnesty program for folks who owe court ordered fees and fines. Uh, we've covered that at KQED. A number of other of our colleagues have. There was a big report a few months ago from the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, essentially saying there's about four million Californians out there who owe money. A lot of whom have lost their driver's licenses because of this, um, and. You know, just to give the governor a shout out for for one of his great quotes today was when I asked him about it. He he said these spiraling fines and fees are a hellhole of desperation for the poor. And uh, he talked about his own ticket for parking in a yellow zone, I yellow believe. Zone. Anyway, yellow zone. And, and um, then he never did it again, he said. But. Yeah. So so this would be a sort of a temporary amnesty program. It, it had, I think, been mentioned previously. I think they were fleshing out some details. Um, but that'll be interesting to kind of see how I think that debate play out. So speaking of uh, interesting to see how debates play out, let's pivot. Let's put away uh, the budget and let's just move to the 
fun and excitement of of electoral politics. We started off these podcasts when we came back to the podcasting universe this year talking, it seemed like every week, about the race for the U.S. Senate that was in 2016. And we talked about it. We talked about who was in, who was not in. It almost became... I was going to say, then we had nothing to say. Yeah, I was going to say, it almost became the joke of the podcast that like every week we had to start off with another non-update into the race for the U.S. Senate. Well, this week we actually got an update. Uh, On Thursday, after... Uh, a lot of talk, a lot of watching for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks that she might be interested but was thinking about it. Uh, Loretta Sanchez, congresswoman from Orange County, uh, threw her hat into the ring uh, for the U.S. Senate seat being vacated by Barbara Boxer and, of course, puts her on a collision course with Kamala Harris, the attorney general of California, who announced right out of the gate so many um, prominent Democrats took a pass on this race, on challenging Harris, Gavin Newsom, Tom Steyer, Antonio Villaraigosa, Adam Schiff, congressman from Burbank, who took a pass this week. Um, uh, Javier Becerra is still out there, congressman. Maybe he will or won't. You know, congressman, call your office. But Loretta Sanchez is in the race. She made the official uh, announcement in Santa Ana. And so now what? I mean, this is... Um, now it gets fun. This is going to be interesting. I mean, if you look at some of what Sanchez said uh, right out of the gate... She talked about that she was a um, a worker, not a, you know, she's not here just to be there. She wants to do something. You know, there's kind of like a, well, who might want to just be there? I, you know, there was like all these comments. She's made comments before about her own bona fides on foreign affairs issues, on her outreach to the Latino community. Stellar Christmas cards. Uh, no know. one has Christmas cards <laughs> no, like Loretta no Sanchez. One, no one but this is going to be interesting. It is. And we're going to get a lot of the, you know, we talked about this with you know, with the possibility of Antonio Villaraigosa, but we're going to get, you know, the regional difference, the North versus South. We're going to get the Latino emergence story. I mean, that narrative will be here. It's just going to be, um, you know, the, the real test for Loretta Sanchez is going to be raising money and, and how much... Um, she's able to pierce the sort of the the notion of inevitability around Kamala Harris. I mean, I think that I, I know it was early, but when you saw significant Democrat after significant Democrat drop out of that race, um, it sort of added to this aura of inevitability about Kamala Harris. And uh, we'll see if Loretta Sanchez uh, has enough to make it happen. It's also going to be a real interesting test of top two. I mean, I, I think... I still think if there's no real unity behind a Republican candidate and a Republican candidate doesn't have any money behind him or her in this race, that there's a real possibility this could end up as a November showdown between right. two Democrats. And what would that look like? Well, but also, too, and and again, I, I'm now cautioning myself a second time to not be too much of a, of a professional pundit because you got to be a reporter and go look for the for the content. But I sat thinking about this on Wednesday night when we knew that Sanchez was going to run. We had this weird Should email. We? Yeah. You know, we had the email thing, which was uh, something got sent out inadvertently. Uh, I'm, I'm in the race. And then, oh, I haven't decided yet that I'm in the race. We can talk about it, but I just feel like it's a small little mechanics. But but as I said, thinking about this race, to your point, Anthony, if two Democrats could actually make it through the process, one of them has got to find votes outside of the party a, a lot. And I don't want to completely draw a parallel, but look at what's happening in that state Senate race in the East Bay, where you've got a Democrat who has made um, a demonstrable effort to bring in Republicans. Could a Loretta Sanchez, just for sake of argument, 
go appeal to Republican voters in some way. I mean, is would it, it be all Loretta just, Sanchez or would it be Kamala Harris? Or Kamala Harris. Would it be a tough on crime attorney general or the I've come from Orange County and my politics are well, somewhat right. more moderated Loretta Sanchez? But I think both of these candidates, I mean, to that point, both of these can- candidates are kind of a blank slate politically to, to most voters. I mean, uh, you know, I don't know if you define Sanchez. I mean, she look, she beat Bob Dornan, and you know, with those, as Orange County was transitioning and Santa Ana was becoming, you know, this large Latino city, and Orange County was transitioning, and uh, you know, and so her rise in in the mid '90s was part of that story. But I don't, I don't know that voters have a good sense of her as a as a lefty liberal or a moderate or centrist Democrat. I mean, same with Kamala Harris. I mean, look at where she's tried to make her mark as attorney general, talking about truancy and focusing on uh, drug crimes and things like that in the Central Valley. And uh, while she's also going after, you know, banks and, and, you know, going after Wall Street as well. I mean, I don't know that there are clear ideological lines in this race. And I think that's what uh, these candidates are going to, have to, uh, they're going to have to introduce themselves to, to California voters. Well, you certainly make the point here, and I think it's a good one, that Sanchez um, starts out, she may have a long resume. She's been in office for almost 20 years. Uh, she has some national uh, resume credentials, but she's not well-known all over the state. Did we and mention she, the holiday cards? Did we mention we the, holiday, mention the okay. holiday cards? But she doesn't have the same platform that Kamala Harris does. Kamala Harris has a great platform as attorney general. She can get on TV. She can hold press conferences. She can do official things. Uh, it's going to be Sanchez has got to introduce herself to, to everywhere else, even though one of her big calling cards in the race has got to be that she has experience on Capitol Hill. She's going to play that up, I'm sure. She's going to suggest that I know how Congress works and the others don't. So Yeah. Well, and I think there's uh, some interesting sort of not just inner party you know, politics around this with, you know, the Latino Democratic caucus up here had pushed hard for a Latino to enter the race. They were very swift today to come out and and, and sort of cheer this move. Um, you know, Kamala Harris being half African-American, half Indian-American, like I think the sort of ethnic and racial politics of this will be fascinating to see who lines up behind whom, especially considering that Harris had locked up a lot of endorsements. I mean, former Speaker John Perez is the co-chair of her campaign, right? So there are a lot of people out there that, you know, have already kind of put their their weight behind Kamala that, that could be in sort of an interesting situation now. And, 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 and a lot of those people were the ones that you know, had maybe pushed for Villaraigosa, former L.A. mayor, to enter the race. And when he decided not to, said, all right, great. Um, and as you mentioned, right. fundraising, I mean, Harris has already raised, you know, four times as much as is in Sanchez's account. So I think that, you know, she's been working the phones hard and, and we're going to see that. Um, but, yeah, they're both, you know, successful, interesting people. And I think it's going to be a fun race to watch. And I got to say, like, as a voter, as a reporter, I'm glad this is going to be a race. Yeah, I think I it, know, it's healthy. It's good. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think, I, and I think that was the frustration that was out there was, uh, you know, and I don't think it's uh, it, it shouldn't be seen as a sign of disrespect to to Kamala Harris. But people feel as though someone needs to be asked the questions and have to work for the votes. And it can't just be a, a cakewalk. No offense to the Republicans who want the job. Right. But that's going to be awfully hard for them to get it. So yeah. and given the fact that. Yeah, like having two people like this is we've, you know, kind of gone over the fact that they're not, you know, sort of typical 
one side or the other Democrats. I think that having this sort of nuance in a race is going to be a lot more interesting than, yeah, if, if Kamala, you know, Harris would have had to answer some questions even with Republicans in the race, but I don't think they would have gotten nearly, like, drilled down nearly as deeply as we might have to see her. And again, from somebody who doesn't have any national policy experience, whose whole, you know, career has been in law enforcement, I think that's going to be a big contrast when you have Sanchez having, you know, decades of votes in Congress. Yeah, it's sort of a good measuring stick, too, for the Latino political clout in the state and, you know, a good, healthy discussion, top of the ticket discussion within the Democratic Party. I mean, we'll see, again, I mean, the ability to have that discussion and have that debate is going to be largely contingent upon Loretta Sanchez's ability to raise money. And I think if she is able to raise the money to, you know, to compete with Kamala Harris, that in itself, that will be sort of the first measure of, um, of, of what we're looking at and, and the hunger to have that discussion within California and within the Democratic Party. And then, of course, who runs for Loretta Sanchez's right. congressional seat in Orange County? That and more stories on our next edition. No, sorry. I had, to, like, I had the soap opera moment. I was going to say also on the like, yeah, we got time. Right. That one we have time. We've got time. We don't have to fill that uh, podcast uh, topic quite yet. Uh, that's Marisa Lagos from KQED, Anthony York from the Grizzly Bear Project, and I'm John Myers from KQED. As always, thanks for tuning in to this California Politics Podcast.